and welcome back to The Moral Minority Show. I'm Joel Sam, as always, and I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Luckett. We just finished our series on deconstruction, where we talked about spiritual transitions and how to wrestle with faith in a productive way, um, and how to walk through seasons of faith transition um, without despair. Today, we're talking about how to have an enemy uh, which is the title of a new book by our guest today, Melissa Flora-Bixler. Melissa is the pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church, and she's been to both Duke University and Princeton Theological Seminary. So some great accolades academically from our guest today. Um, Melissa, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Could you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself, however you would like to? Yeah, it's great to be with you all. Um, yeah, out here in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I pastor a Mennonite church. And yeah, that lets me get into all sorts of stuff. And I'm excited about the work that our church is a part of and our community um, do. I uh, have just been through a campaign for affordable housing in our city and then um uh, continue to work on memorials to lynching victims here in the South through the Equal Justice Initiative. And I'm one of the organizers for our community remembrance project here. Um, yeah, so it feels like there's, you know, just tons of work to do and um, uh, a lot of freedom ahead of us. So um, yeah, so excited about that. And then um, just like normal parenting life, I've got three kids and they are very fortunately back in school, which has made life a lot more um, possible, I guess. Like, I don't even know what we were doing last year. It just, just was like such a blur. But yeah, we're all back in school again. And that feels really good. So yeah, that's life right now. Great. <laughs> and, you know, we like to do this with all of our guests. Could we hear a little bit about your faith background? Um, did you grow up in a you know, family that followed Jesus? Have you always been in North Carolina? How has your faith or your work evolved over the years? Yeah, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, but the more conservative end of the Episcopal Church that has left to become the Anglican Church in North America. So a, a church that began um, out of the sort of culture war around LGBTQ inclusion and has become its own own denomination now. Um, so uh, a little bit different when I say the Episcopal Church from what I think a lot of people think of when they yeah. think of the Episcopal Church. I'm, um, I'm part of the Anglican Church of North America now, so I'm very uh, familiar, but yes, I bet a lot of our listeners yeah. are not. I tell people I'm Anglican yeah. now and they're like, what? What is that? What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit more of the church that I grew up in. And, and, I, and I was, you know, still a teenager when that split happened in the church. And it was really painful to watch and to experience. And um, that was about the same time that the U.S. began to the invasion of Iraq and then started the Afghan war. Um, and that was also very formative and just led me to a lot of questions about what it meant to be a part of a church that was so deeply intertwined with the state and um, to... I didn't that at the time just didn't really have the resources that I needed to navigate what it meant to be a Christian in a world at war. 
Uh, and that's when I ran into the Mennonites. Um, ended up uh, getting invited to hear somebody talk about his experience with Mennonite Central Committee and working in Iraq at the height of the war. Um, and I had never known somebody who went into a place of war, not as a soldier, but as a person of peace um, to, to uh, who risks their life um, to uh, be a, a source of hope and to their, to, to people who were said to be my enemies, right. My, my national enemies. Um, and that was, <laughs> I think the first time I was like, Oh, wow. These people are serious about Jesus. Like this is like not like when Jesus says like love your enemies. These people are very serious about this, and I think if I want to like continue to do this Jesus thing, I want to be this serious about Jesus. Like I want to just like be all in for this. Um, and yeah, so that's what got me into the Mennonite Church, and kind of been hanging out there ever since. And now I'm a pastor, and um, yeah, so that's kind of how how I got to where I am today. That's amazing. You know, I think um, a lot of our listeners or maybe just people in general may not have like may have an idea of what the Mennonite church is as very Amish adjacent and very kind of stuck in a different time. Um, but from what I've heard of from you on maybe other podcasts or Twitter, you've, you've discussed the Mennonite church is actually being really um, open and more diverse than people would expect. Because could you quickly talk about you know, the Mennonite church and the, and the pocket of it, that's maybe outside of the common knowledge. Yeah. So the, yeah, the Mennonite churches, I think like most churches has a, has a broad range of what it means to be a part of that tradition. Our range just happens to be much, much bigger than, than I think a lot of other traditions are. So yeah. So that the Amish are, 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 is our cousin faith, right? They're, um, the, broke off from the Mennonite church to be able to live in a more kind of cloistered um, lifestyle from, from Mennonites. But um, today Mennonites are all over the world. You know, like in most churches, they're the mo- the place where there's the most Mennonites is in, um, is on the continent of Africa. Um, Mennonite world conference is really active and sort of helping to sort of establish a global Anabaptist relationship. Um, and there are lots of different kinds of Mennonite churches in the U.S. too. Garifuna Mennonite churches and Hmong Mennonite churches, um, Iglesia Hispana Mennonite churches and Brownsville, Texas. And so even though we're a majority white uh, denomination here in the U.S. that, uh, you know, grew out of Swiss German and Russian ancestry, uh, the Mennonite church actually takes a lot of different cultural forms depending on sort of who's there and and who's organized and where you are in the world. Mm. That's amazing. Um, So they say that um, Twitter and social media are beginning to uh, cause, um, you know, uh, anxiety and depression and, you know, the fear of missing out for a lot of people as they see people's highlights on social media. And especially with like the polarizing nature of, our culture on so many different topics, whether it's religion or politics or so on and so forth. Um, But that is actually where me and Joel found you um, was that we started following you on Twitter and um, it has been such an amazing ride. And in many ways I've actually like really admired just how you um, deal with theology in a very complicated way 
um, on the platform. Um, and so, and you've had some really fun moments on there as well that I'd love to get to here in a second. But, um, but I love to know like a couple things and you can answer these one at a time, but, um, what, uh, one, what was it that kind of, so you talked about your experience with like, um, kind of during the Iraq war, like seeing people, uh, approach the war in a very different way, a very pacifist way. Um, and that was very radicalizing, but, um, what was maybe uh, another event um, specifically in the realm of politics that kind of uh, uh, maybe pushed you in a certain direction politically? Um, and like, where, like, where would you define that? Like, where would you define that um, space that you are as far as like, um, as a believer, um, you know, kind of, I think it's always been um, kind of an assumed thing that people would have like, you know, right-leaning politics. Um, well, maybe um, as a that, white evangelical uh, believer in America. That's fair. Well, that's fair. Um, but yeah, so, like, yeah, where, where, where would you kind of um, define, you know, your spot as a, as a Christian and maybe, yeah, what radicalized you um, to maybe move in a different direction than where most kind of white fundamentalist evangelicals are? Yeah, you know, my, um, yeah, I, I would say that the sort of the catalyst moment for me was actually the death of Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a seminary student. And I think to that point, um, it's, I, I've, I've never really been as deeply in. My, I didn't grow up in as quite a closed off evangelical space, white evangelical space. I think because the, the even though my church was very conservative, we still had the, the sort of social influence of like the Book of Common Prayer that, you know, like we still did the liturgy, right? So there was this kind of like a little bit of an offset to the, to certainly what were very strong culture wars that were happening in my church. Um, so I had a little bit of a different experience in that way, a little more open. And, you know, I went to public school and, um, you know, I just like, yeah, it, it's sort of a different upbringing. I think some, some white evangelicals had, but really my more of a shift for me was going from what I, I started off at, which was broad-based community organizing um, around, you know, sort of trying to, uh, like form coalitions for immediate needs on the ground to a more um, activist politics after Trayvon Martin was murdered. Um, uh, so part of that also, and I don't know that I've ever talked about this on a podcast, but the but the person who murdered Trayvon Martin went to my high school. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Um, was a couple years older than me, had a brother who was a couple years younger than me, but um, we were there for, you know, a year um, at the same time. And I didn't know him well, but I think for me, there was something about that, um, that that sometimes I think we can um, put these events someplace else, right? Like this happened, George Floyd is is murdered in Minnesota or, you know, the, like the, the pulse shooting happens in Orlando and this, um, because of that, because this person grew up in Manassas, Virginia, because 
the like I could see this face and recognize this as a face that I saw walking around my high school. Um, it was not possible to escape that somehow the world that I lived in had also created um, cre- had created this person, right? Who um, that these are ordinary people in some way, right? That this is this isn't there's an ordinariness to this, which is um, which is actually somewhat more um, chilling than than the idea of like, oh, well, this must just be an especially terrible person, right? There was no way to sort of um, justify justify this act. Mm-hmm. Um, my world had produced this situation, um, this murder. So, so for me, that was a real turning point. And of course, that's where the Black Lives Matter movement um, is is given birth after Trayvon Martin is is murdered. Um, and yeah, and so that re- that was really a shift from I think for me from more more of a central more centered around. Um, and organizing around economics and coalitions to an activism around race um, that was more, um, more, more pointed racially than I think that I had been involved in before. Wow. Um, yeah. I, you have no idea how powerful it is to hear that. It's, it's funny. Like, you know, I um, have, uh, you know, whenever I get asked, you know, the question that I asked you, that's actually my exact same turning point. Uh, of course. Yeah, you uh, also went to high school with Melissa, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Good job, Joe. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> no, but um, yeah, that's, that's actually pretty crazy that you, um, that you went to high school um, with him. That's, uh, that, that's, that's, yeah, that, that's going to be a much more intimate thing that hits a little close to home, but closer to home. But yeah, that was, uh, it was a very similar turning point for me in being a Christian um, was watching. It was really more of the reaction that uh, white evangelicals in the spaces that I was in had to the Trayvon Martin situation. Um, and so, wow. Yeah. That, that's really um, powerful. Um, I guess a follow up to that is something that I'm really intrigued about is uh Theologically, who have been some uh, theologians, um, whether in the academic space or even just people that you've watched them live out practically their theology um, that have uh, that really shaped you as a theologian, as you pastor and minister and write books and and speak out about injustice? Who have been some people who shaped your theological journey? Well, certainly I would say James Cone, um, the the late and um, beloved James Cone, who taught at Union Seminary and, um, you know, I think the, the cross and the lynching tree, but God of the oppressed were all significant texts to me um, that I was reading at the same time that, you know, right around this time we were talking about when Trayvon Martin was murdered that this is also the time where um, Jeremiah Wright is is preaching these sermons that are these prophetic sermons that sound like the pro- that sound like the prophets in the Bible preached at the United States, and that also being his writing being significant for this moment of reckoning that was happening in the United States, um, and all and and interesting to sort of trace that this that sort of felt like 
um, the Obama administration, Jeremiah Wright, this like the like some of the catalysts for the for the white anxieties that eventually produced Donald Trump, right? Like, um, of course, these are always building, but it's like fire gets thrown into or gas gets thrown on the fire at this point. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm reading I'm reading those people. I'm reading um, uh, womanist theologians. Um, you know, reading Will Gaffney's um, womanist midrash and. Um, but Renita Weems, like one of the one of our mothers of womanist theology, who has been doing this work for decades. Um, but then also just finding actually a lot of solidarity for the gospel of liberation in, in people like Angela Y. Davis, um, in in some in in bell hooks and some of the old liberation texts, you know, even like um yeah, sort of things that are uh, like outside of the church, but all, but there's this like definitely this like Venn diagram, right? Like you can see the places where there's actually this just this radical spirit of freedom from the from from the systems that we have created um, that maps onto the the Jesus project, right? Of of the subversion of the powers. Um, and so those actually, I, I often needed to go outside the church to find people who really um, were radical enough to imagine that vision <laughs> that I saw in Jesus actually happening in our in in the world today. Um, and yeah, so the, all of those voices were just so formative for me. Mm-hmm. Right, that's beautiful. You had a. Uh... Uh, an interesting interaction on Twitter um, with a pretty popular theologian, uh, Timothy Keller. Um, he was talking about, um, hey, there's uh, there's there's kind of these two paths that we can go on. There's kind of this more, um, you know, um, conservative idea of like, you know, everything's all about personal responsibility and um, this uh, this uh, more liberal idea of everything's uh, everything's affected by society and there is no personal responsibility. And the Christian way is kind of this third way. Um, and you don't have to go into the details of, you know, kind of some of the, um, uh, ways you responded, but I, I, I thought it was a perfect segue to like your book of like, uh, so you wrote a book called how to have an enemy. Um, and I think, uh, uh, it, it, it's interesting that, you know, uh, kind of, uh, um, antithetical to what uh, Timothy Keller's talking about. You're like, no, I think we can kind of define that. Like, there is a side, there is a there is a space to to have some discernment and say, hey, I'm actually going to pick, you know, anti-racism as opposed to um, what I see as racism. Um, and uh, you know, you kind of talk about it in your book a little bit. Um, uh, you made a statement of like. In order for us to do what Jesus commanded to love our enemies, we have to know who our enemies are. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear you just kind of um, extrapolate upon that and just kind of talk about, you know, what it, what does it look like for there to be a Christianity where where many people will look from the outside in and say, oh, that's uh, a polarizing perspective to pick a side or, you know, whatever, and not just kind of be in the middle um, but you would say, no, it's actually a, a really healthy way to see um, uh, who's on the other side, um, maybe properly define it. And then 
um, engage with that person knowing that maybe, you know, they're in error. So I'd love to hear you kind of extrapolate on that a little bit. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I think it's a, a just a very strange mischaracterization, mischaracterization of Jesus that we often get that somehow Jesus is there as like the lead negotiator between the two different parties of the world, you know, that, um, and, and, but what we actually get in Jesus is this incredibly polarizing person, right? He, you know, he says, um, he says things over and over again, that to the wealthy and the powerful of his day are, um, rejected because they are, um, they are a rejection of, of, of what they have accumulated, of who they have become and how they have gotten to that place. Um, and then we have Jesus who blesses the poor, right? And, and, and puts his life in, is born into poverty and, and lives his life among the poorest of, uh, of Judea. And I, I think it's important for us to name that that is the dynamic that's happening in scripture um, rather than that somehow Jesus is um, working to reconcile these two groups, right? Like instead what we have is Jesus sort of imagines that there is going to be this form of life that he carves out um, with the, with the most vulnerable people at the center of it. And then the rest of us, have to get our lives over there and to conform our lives. And it's in the barriers that are broken down are broken down in that space, right? That it's, um, it all happens within a particular form of life that Jesus creates, uh, that Jesus carves out. And all of this teaching is around that. Like, what is the reign of God? Like, it is like, you know, this mustard seed, it's like this lost coin. Um, and so we get all of these instructions that aren't for civic dialogue or um, reconciling across the aisle. They're very specific forms of life that people in the church are called to, right? It's, ve- it's very sectarian in a lot, in a lot of ways. Um, Jesus does not actually seem that concerned about political conflict, right? Like that's the story of riding in on Palm Sunday in, <laughs> into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover, right? Like it is a provocation of the, um, of the government's forces, right? To take on this role of a conquering king riding into Jerusalem. Um, it's a mockery of the powers. Um, when Jesus calls Herod a fox, right? This is, um, this is an intentional provocation. Um, and so that's actually the Jesus we follow is the, is the one who is constantly provoking. Um, and so I, I, you know, I don't, um, we follow after that Jesus, we are not, I, I don't know that we are direct, you know, I'm not like, I don't necessarily feel like everybody needs to go out and be like constantly provoking the powers of the day. Um, and and yet that is that is all that's 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 Jesus. That's that's the one that we're following after. And and so that has to be that has to mean something for us as a like a body politic. Right. Yeah, I think you've brought up some excellent points. And I, I would totally agree with you. Like Jesus is a very polarizing character. He is not um this kind of like wishy-washy in-between person necessarily. I, I would agree 
I would say that he doesn't necessarily fit our categories, uh, that the vision of the kingdom is hard to categorize and it's hard to like just quickly lump in a political party. Um, I think that's messy, but there is a vision that is pretty clear. Um, and I think there's, you know, room for disagreement on some of the details. Um, but like you're saying, God is consistently throughout scripture on the side of the marginalized. Um, you know, one thing that is a question that always, um, kind of sticks out to me and, and makes really makes me think in this conversation is, you know, we see Jesus speaking truth to power in the context of Roman empire. And even, even in other parts of scripture, we see, um, speaking truth to power, whether that be the, um, slave holding power of Egypt or the conquering power of Babylon. And uh, the consistent theme that we see through scripture is that the people who follow Yahweh and Jesus are those who are exiles in these tyrannical, empirical contexts. Um, one thing that isn't quite modeled in scripture is what does it look like for Christians to be in power? And, you know, whether that be you know, kind of historically, we see the first example of that with Constantine, and there's a whole slew of things that went wrong there. But then also here, um, with modern democracy, where the people in power, power is distributed among a wide range of people, um, and at least in the context of America, many of whom claim to be Christians and would say that they are endorsing um, what, what they would consider to be a Christian worldview. So how do we um, think about speaking truth to power in an intelligent way while people who follow Jesus are also in power. What, what do we do about that? Yeah, you know, I'm, I mean, I think that there, all, there is always this sense of, um, that there, like, that ju just that within the, whether it's Israel or whether it's in the early church, it's not as if everybody, is, like, that everybody is, acting the way that God intends them to, right? Like we have, you know, in the, in the Corinthian church, you have these wealthy people who are coming and eating all the communion meal before the poor people get there, right? It's not that one of them isn't a Christian and one of them's not, they're just not, they're not, just not doing the right thing, right? Like it's, um, so if, and then, you know, in, in Isaiah, we see this, we have a, like a pretty strong condemnation for the um, for the sacrificial system that puts the, the the poorest people at risk during the siege that's going on, right? Like that's the scene we get in Isaiah one, um, and so within there's this is also always being mediated, right? Like like the prophecy isn't always just to people out there; it's often to people in there inside, right? Like that is um, the, these warnings that we get in Revelation to the seven churches, right? Like. Those are prophecies for for us, for to for us on the inside of the church um, about how to live our lives, um, and so I think we have all this material that reminds us um, of of what it means to be in those positions of power. Um, all of these warnings that are given, and I'm not convinced that we are heeding them very mm -hmm. well um, as the church in America. Well, yeah, and as a follow up, I guess, what do you think? Christians should do with power should they like one should they even pursue power I know that some people in the in the peace church traditions or the Anabaptists would say no Christians should not 
you know, be in politics whatsoever. Um, what would your answer to that be? And I guess too, if someone who follows Jesus is in a position with power, how do they steward that power? Well, do they have to give it up or delegate it or can they balance having power with also, or, or, or we could also consider wealth as semi synonymous with power a lot of the time. How, how can we, uh, give people space to um, use that if they can. Well, I'm, you know, I, it's, I talk to my kids a lot about this because we, you know, they know that I were, you know, of course, very involved in especially local politics here because that's where most things happen um, is in your city council meeting. And, 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 you know, my kids have asked me, well, what, like, why, how, why wouldn't you want to be on city council or why wouldn't you? Um, and I, the thing that I've told them is, well, I can't lie. I'm, I'm not allowed to like, we're not allowed to lie. Uh, like, what do you mean? It's like, I can't make promises to people that I, that I can't keep. Um, and, and that's how you win a campaign is you lie, you lie to people. <laughs> you may not, you may not be right. Like people actively lie in campaigns all the time. They make promises they know they can't keep. Um, and, and so my, my, I, like the same thing I would say to my kids is to any Christian, just can you, can you get to the place of power and like doing the, like doing the things that we are, we have to do as people who love Jesus, right? Like, can you, um, can you not kill people, right? Can, or can you not be in a position to authorize the murder of others through drone strikes or approving the military budget or the policing budget? Um, if not, our first commitment is like, we can't love people if we're murdering them or mm -hmm. participating in their, in their destruction, right? So um, I guess if I, you know, if you're willing to say, I just need you to know up front that I'm gonna, I, I will not vote on the on the police budget um if you still think you can get elected doing that um if you can get elected without nationalism if you can it just i just don't think it's possible yeah. right like that's um yeah and so so sort of this um i think that's the first question is what does it actually take for people to get into these positions of power um what does it actually take for you to to earn wealth um Wealth only comes in this country off the off somebody else's back, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, are, you don't really become rich like without <laughs> without some pretty bad labor conditions or participating in um, uh, in in trade in trading that um, puts other people's lives at risk, right? Like, so what are the calculations that we're making to say, yeah, I'm willing to um, sort of put this to the side? Um, in order to get to this position of influence. Um, and Mennonites would say, actually, no, like you just have to follow Jesus. God is faithful. Um, God does not need you in a position of power. God is um, God is the one who's in control of the universe. Um, and our our job is to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know what you know what's funny, Melissa? I would have totally disagreed with that like two and a half years ago, and you were totally right on everything that you just said. Like like I I remember like there were um there uh, there's a really good friend of mine, he's actually been on the podcast uh uh we when we were doing a series on politics. And uh I was already kind of being shaped by this TV show called Vikings. I don't know if you've seen it, it's pretty 
pretty. He only cool. talks about it every um, episode. But it, it, it has a lot of um, kind of, uh, it has a lot of themes that challenge the worldview should, um, what, what power does to people. Um, and I had a really good friend that really started challenging me on that um, about just the idea of like power and whether it's, um, and whether it's ever um, uh, a wise thing for Christians to pursue, even if they're trying to pursue it for what they would call, you know, healthy reforms that they would make once they end up in power. And both of those, just both of the ways that you just explained that were so um, ironically powerful um, in the sense of like, it's just, you're right. I mean, how, how do you get into power without playing a lot of the political games that are incredibly dishonest and corrupt? You know, how do you gain wealth without taking advantage of people, which is pretty kind of inherent within capitalism. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to comment on I just how brilliant I thought that response was to Joel's question. But um, I'll, I think one of the things that I've been wrestling with that I would just, you know, I and ho hopefully the audience as well would love your wisdom on is so we have seen a huge shift in a particular political aisle um, in our country within the last, um, I, I guess I would say 20 years. Um, uh, so, you know, you look at kind of like the George Bush era of Republicanism, which was incredibly flawed. And I mean, he definitely, um, you mentioned the Iraq war earlier, um, uh, initiated and orchestrated that and it's awful. And, um, in many ways he's a war criminal. And, um, and so, you know, don't want to overly glorify that, but there was a sense in which, um, there was a point kind of with him and even his dad and even Reagan, where as awful as some of the policies we can look back on were, um, it was a little bit more of a neoconservatism. Um, whereas, Recently, especially when you look at kind of the presidency of Donald Trump, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we've almost seen, at least ideologically, kind of a neo-fascism as far as just uh, the, the very anti-immigration, the very us versus them strong mentality, the very um, the kind of more um, overt instead of covert racism that we've seen over the last 50 years now. In the in the Trump administration, we saw just very covert just, um, language of racism, and we saw that play out in a lot of um, policies as well. And so, I get the the point I'm getting to is, as believers, um, there are a lot of believers who end up in um, church spaces or in some kind of spaces of communities with people who are, in my opinion. Oftentimes, very kind, cordial, polite, the Southern hospitable people, um, but who have, I mean, taken hook, line and sinker um, all of this ideology as truth and as good. Um, and some of that ideology is genuinely just Christian nationalism, conspiracy, conspiratorial. And um, like I said, at the risk of being a little too hyperbolic, neo-fascist. And so how do how do Christians engage with people who more than likely or potentially are our brothers and sisters in Christ who have, I mean, really um, dove in into these um, objectively pretty dangerous worldviews? 
Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I don't, um, but I'll start by saying, I, th- I think that we put a lot of our eggs in the basket of, um, conversations, stories, um, worshiping together can overcome these differences that we have, right? This is, this is the place where I think I see, especially this, I think this has been the response to the Trump administration, right? Has been not been to condemn this as, um, antichrist, which is what it is. It is white supremacy. It is not an exaggeration to say this is neo-fascism. It is neo-fascism and it is anti-Jesus Christ. Like that is like what it is. Um, and to be faithful to that call as the church and let the chips land where they lay, where they may, right? Like that is not what the church has done overwhelmingly. What the church, I think the response has been is, well, we can just hang together in this space and eventually our worship and our um, our relationships and is going to overcome this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that if that was the case, I would actually like to see that some people have renounced their Trumpism five years in. And I'm not seeing a lot of that, right? Like I, I don't have a lot of stories of people who have sat with um, people in their in their churches who have been harmed by the Trump administration, who bear the weight of the Trump administration and are feeling like, oh yeah, I really should like not be on this. Like I need to do something else now, right? That doesn't seem to be what happens. What does happen is we use political labels like Republican and Democrat to get away with not having to talk about what that actually means, right? We, this is a, it's a helpful label for us not to have to say, what did, what did you actually vote for here? Like, what, what, what is it that you are for? Um, not just as what happened in the voting booth, but in your life. Mm-hmm. Like, what is this, um, that somehow you, you are not a separate person in the voting booth from how you worship, from what your job is, from how do you, um, react to a, a, a black man walking down the street of your all white neighborhood, right? Like all of that is at, you're actually the same person all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the good news of Jesus Christ is good news for the fullness of who we are, right? To, to rescue us from sin and death, including the sin and death that comes from our bondage to white supremacist systems, whether we are those who enact them or, or who are survivors um, of them, right? Like that's, that's what God has come to free us from in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, um, I wanted, I want to dispel that myth of, um, well, if we just stay together long enough, that unity is sort of going to co- overcome these differences between us. Um, seems like what we need right now is some truth telling um, with one another. Um, and to be able to cultivate the spaces where we can give and receive the truth <laughs> from one another about what's happening in our world um, and what the church's responsibility is in this moment to be faithful to who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know that that um, looks really messy and um, it leads to conflict. It's going to like bring uh, divisions between families 
which is exactly what Jesus mm-hmm. promised us. Yeah. That is actually what we were promised. Um, this idea that we would all just be able to worship together and there would never be any concerns and we could just hold together was never promised to right. us in scripture. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were promised that faithfulness to Jesus would bring conflict yeah. in a lot of places in our lives. What you just said is such truth because wisdom proves itself. Um, it's one of the reasons why it has been so amazing to follow you on Twitter and to listen to you or, you know, read the things that you um, tweet or the things that you write, read your books, things of that nature. Because it's like, I, I think for me, especially as an African-American man, um, for so long, I've, I've always felt as though, and I, I guess I do have to kind of play nice with, you know, um, this side that in many ways, like oftentimes, ideologically, what they're what they're disseminating, what they're articulating is dangerous for my body and is dangerous for my family and is dangerous for a lot of people on the margins. And I think it, it, it's just so powerful to um, to see um, and to hear, you know, pastors say, um, no, you, you kind of don't have to like reconcile with that. Of course, you still have to find a way to, you know, love your enemy like Jesus um, spoke about, but there are, um, I guess there are more um, beautiful and creative ways to do that than simply subjecting yourself to um, to a worldview that is, you know, quite frankly, um, not only on a national level and an international level, um, very, you know, dangerous, but on a personal level, like dangerous for, like I said, for my for my body. And so that segues me to um, a question of then what does it look like to obey Jesus's command to love your enemy? Even if we would say that person is walking in a spirit of antichrist, what what does it look like to, um, to love your enemy? One of the important parts of my journey has been learning that my um, participation in white supremacy is also to my destruction, right? It's it's not as if um, I'm faring well in white supremacy, like to, living within the lie of um, a racialized world that um, I live off the backs of... Um, and the harm of my siblings um, who are black and brown is not a good life, right? Like that's not, that's not good for me. Um, And so um, what we are actually talking about in the system of white supremacy um, is that we are, that we are all caught in it and we all need to be freed from it. Um, And so when we are, when we're called to love our, love our enemies, um, where part of that is like telling the truth about our world, right? And about the places that we are, um, we are all trapped in this, in, in these systems. Um, and so I, I think that sometimes what that actually means is because I don't, because I'm not convinced that we can talk people out of racism. Like I just, maybe some people can, I just don't have that, like whatever skill that is. Um, 
But what I can do is I can build a new world, right? Like I can, um, I can actually begin to cultivate the kind of um, the things that I want for everyone, right? Like I want everyone to know that their worst mistake is not who they are, right? I want them to know that um, you are not um, defined by enmity to other people. You are actually defined um, by God's love for you, um, which is doesn't require anything of you, right? Like I want people to live into um, a kind of world where um, every time they do something wrong, they're not punished and sent away and isolated from everybody else. But there's actually real justice and real um, on-ramps back into community. That's actually good news for all of us, right? Like that's good news for every one of us. Um, But as long as we continue to have a system that um, where it's perpetuated and where where there are victims of that system, um, we're both stuck in it, right? So, so to love our enemies is to pull that system apart, right? Um, and it, it's to begin to build a new kind of life um, and to make it the kind of thing that other people want to be a part of. Um, and that, I think that's good news. Well, I was thinking about this idea, you know, we, we often think of, I mean, it's really easy to think about contentious topics, especially politically in terms of us versus them. And and you're right, Melissa, in saying in order to love your enemy, you need to know your enemy. Um, I, I think the hardest part is that so many of us are not even around our um, enemies in this context. Like you, you were saying, you know, I haven't heard of an example of people worshiping together and these issues being resolved. I think that's because we're not worshiping together. Um, I recently read a study that looked at I think it was a combination of a, like a survey question that asked if you like, what would you do if your church had values that didn't align with you politically? And the resounding consensus among the survey participants was that they would go to another church. They're the, what they heard in their spiritual community was not driving their politics, but their politics was driving their selection of a spiritual community and um, I, I think that is, I mean, it's very rare to have spiritual communities where people of differing political ideologies um, overlap, which, you know, we can talk about echo chambers and polarization, et cetera. Um, I think every, everyone already has. Um, and, and, you know, as many of us know, it's easier to be contentious. It's easier to be the most extreme version of whatever ideology you subscribe to through the internet and not through like actual flesh and blood connection with people. Um, so, so Melissa, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on actually having construction, constructive relationships and engagements with people that we would say, okay, these actions or these ideas are against the vision of Christ and the vision of the kingdom of God. How do we, um, maybe engage in the most constructive way. You, you mentioned cultivating a better world uh, because people are typically not convinced, but what happens when we are um, maybe in our families or maybe in our churches or our neighbors, w- what do we actually do in those situations? If, if we can't argue them into uh, submission or, or, or uh, you know, a 
a better vision, um, how do we engage? What are some constructive ways of engagement? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there most of the most of the studies we have do show that it's really difficult to to like facts are not um, <laughs> are not what they used to be to people. Um, I remember reading this really interesting study that that talked about how people were given um, a study that um, disagreed with a with a political opinion that they held. So let's say that they believed that guns didn't make people safer, and they produced the study that said actually guns do make people safer, right? Well, just for example, I have no idea if that's true. Um, and instead of believing the study that they were given, people actually s- went out and found other data to contradict right, yeah. what they had heard. Like, like even like the most, you can be like, look, this peer reviewed study is here before you. Um, because so much of our partisan identities now are actually identities. Mm-hmm. They have nothing to do with ideological consistency right? in case we haven't noticed yet. Um, and that that isn't actually symmetrical. Like there, that is much worse on the Republican side than the Democrat side. Yeah. It's, not, it's true on both sides, but mm-hmm. ideological inconsistency is growing among the GOP. Um, and, and so this is a really tough thing because you can't really talk about facts or, you know, like, let's talk about the issues because the issues don't really matter. Um, You can talk about who's got the best story, I guess, like whose, whose story is the most compelling to you and try to convince the other person. Um, Or you, and, and if that's, I mean, we have limited resources in that respect, I think in terms of things that we've actually found to be effective um, at changing people's minds or helping them to understand, or um, I, I think what we have, what we have to ask ourselves is how committed are we to that project right. and why, why is that a significant project for mm-hmm. us? Um, is that where we want to spend our time right. is, I mean, it's not to say like, I, I think my neighbors are probably pretty politically different from me. Um, and like we, our na- like normal neighbors <laughs> we get along, but but I'm not gonna like I. But if something happened, um, could and we were in our family was undocumented, I wouldn't be able to trust them mm-hmm. to help us, right? Like that's that's like where the rubber meets the right. road. Like mm-hmm. it's easy for people to have conversation and dialogue and get along when there's nothing on the line, mm-hmm. right? And Josh, I heard you saying this too, right? Like. It's a different experience to say to my white Republican um, neighbor, like, can't we just get along with each other when they're not going to call the cops on me when I'm trying to get into my house late one night, right? Like, it's a different burden that's born. Um, it's a, and it's particularly a burden along racial lines, mm-hmm. right? And so this is one of the things I often say about my own congregation, which is that LGBTQ affirming congregation is I'm fine with people thinking whatever they want about LGBTQ people, but this has to be a safe place for those people in our congregation. <laughs> like, like we cannot have, um, we cannot say that we are for Chris and Pam if we're not willing to support 
and care for their marriage, right? Like, and so if you're not sure if Chris and Pam should even be married, that's going to be really hard for us to actually have community together. Um, if you're not exactly sure that I should be preaching as a pastor, how are you going to support me in my ministry? Right? Like this is a, like, this really, um, this really matters on the ground when there's actually people in your congregation, on your street, in your school, who for them, this isn't just a theoretical issue of, of cordial relationships, right? But it's actually about um, the weight that is borne by people at the margins of power. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's beautiful. And I think, um, yeah, I, I love that because I think you said this earlier, uh, Melissa, it's like, it's very easy to just like create a couple categories, like, oh, there's Republicans and then there's Democrats and, you know, similar to kind of what Timothy Keller did on Twitter. It's like, and you know, those are just, those are just two ideological opinions. And it's like, no, like, like one has had a long history of um, moving closer and closer towards um, quite frankly, anti-academia and, um, and, uh, and uh, anti those on the margins. And so it's like, with that reality, it's like, I think, you know, Joel, just pondering your question of just like, I just don't think, like kind of like what Melissa was saying, I just don't think that that's like a safe, but like I've had to make those decisions as far as like where I go to church. It's like, it's not really a safe place for me to go to church with people who like, who like vote against my body, you know, like, or, or, or have ideologies that are like, like anti, you know, black and brown people and women and, you know, um, the queer community and so on and so forth. And so, um yeah and i think like i don't know it it, it it's just so freeing to to hear you talk melissa because i think there is a beauty in saying what it, what it, what if what it looks like to to love my neighbor is to build a um and even to love my enemy is to build a society where my enemy is is freed of that ideology that's weighing them down and that's in many ways kind of destroying them and they're free to see a better society with with you know a more robust and wholesome um human flourishing um and hopefully eventually through the world just because we do know that we we do know that although maybe facts won't change people's minds sometimes when the world just changes um people just change i mean we've literally seen that when you talk about like um you know uh i don't know 70 years ago um, I wouldn't be able to be in any spots with white friends, you know, and be safe. And like now, because society has just been shifted by legislation and by, um, prophetic words from the black church and from, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, people have just changed and become a, a closer to anti-racist. And so, um, so yeah, I think, uh, I'm, I'm more just giving commentary sure. on what you were saying, Melissa, because I just think it was so powerful that I, I, I think that is a beautiful way to love our enemy is to just shift and change um, society to a point where our enemy is no longer being weighed down by those awful burdens that 
um, their ideology holds, if I'm understanding what you're saying properly. Yeah. And, and you know, this actually makes me think that this that kind of gap that we're discussing or that, that tension we're discussing may actually um, dovetail well into the idea of allyship. For example, I'm a middle class Asian male, and so I'm relatively unmarginalized compared to the vast majority of, of those who are mar- marginalized. And so actually for me, it, it's much more comfortable for me to be around people who have more um, conservative p- political ideologies because I personally don't have anything on the line. And so I don't have a uh, somatic or embodied response to those uh, harmful ideologies. And so it's actually, I, I can be in those spaces and I can engage with those people. And uh, there's almost a level of like, oh, I can, um, so that my friends who are marginalized don't have to bear the weight or the constant exhaustion of having to explain their existence um, and, you know, their their pursuit of justice, I can kind of pick up more of that emotional burden because it has less of an emotional toll on me personally. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think one of the other, you know, as we're talking about this, <laughs> I don't know that there's ever been a movement, like movement work in the history of this country that has happened because white moderates were convinced to join the struggle, yeah. right? Like, can you think of like I like I can't think of any struggle that was like, oh, you know what we really need right now <laughs> are white moderates. Like, if we just got that demographic, like we could push this thing through. Like, it just has not happened that way. Um, it is. It is the. It is always a group of people who are self-liberating and have um, put themselves on the line and invited others to come alongside them that has changed the course of oppression in this country. And those are also the times where our country is most polarized. So I don't actually think of polarization as a bad thing. Like times of polarization are times where um, where movements are happening because people at the margins of power are demanding their their place at like to be heard to be recognized to have rights right um every single time that happens there is pol- that is the source of polarization in this country of course most polarized time in their country um the civil war um far behind it um the civil rights period not far behind that is the feminist movement not far behind that is the lgbtq movement all the other times people are happy to just sort of like get along right because um because like the people are not are not making these demands on the on the on the political and the economic and the social structures of the day right so it actually I'm actually not afraid of polarization. I don't think of polarization as a problem. I think of it as a sign that there is a movement afoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to pay attention to what that movement is and to where the spirit is moving through that movement and to figure out how I can align myself with with that work that's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Melissa. Thanks so much for that. And um, for listeners, Melissa's 
new book that's coming out or is it already out i should specify yeah, it's okay it's completely out sorry i didn't know if you had an advanced copy josh um it's called how to have an enemy righteous anger and the work of peace now melissa i do want to take a second and ask about your earlier book fire by night finding god in the pages of the old testament um if you can quickly summarize why you were motivated to write that book and um what maybe you learned through the process and what's kind of like the main takeaway from that? Um, I wrote Fire by Night um, because I joined, I mentioned I became a Mennonite um, and Mennonites uh, as as a rule do, don't really love the Old Testament. Um, I, I would encounter pretty frequently this um, sense from the Mennonite, from Mennonite congregations, especially, but I think this is true in a lot of the church that the Old Testament is a book that is violent. It's about retribution. The God we meet there is angry and um, vengeful, which was very strange to me because my, I've studied the Old Testament. I have, a, I have two degrees in Old Testament and um that's not the God that I encounter in, in, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, there are certainly parts to, to the first part of our Bible that are um, where there's war and, 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 um, and overtaking cities and colonization, all, all of this. Um, but all of that happens in the midst of a much greater narrative arc of God's covenant love for God's people that eventually spills out to all the world um, in Jesus Christ. Um, and so I wanted to write a book that talked about that side of, of the Old Testament that really centered um, careful readings of scripture that um, didn't um, immediately sort of seed themselves to, well, this, this is a part of the Bible that we need to clean up. And the way we clean it up is with Jesus. Yeah, well, thanks so much for that. In your book, you said something that was really powerful. Um, you said. Uh, uh church history is not like uh just this linear thing of like where the church is just always there um but it's there's almost this sense in which um since Jesus there are just moments where the church shows up or there're just unique moments where um uh the church is the church and it really is kind of what Jesus um envisioned and invented um and so just one last thought um, if you were to, I mean, you're not a prophet, and um, but if you were to say, hey, this is a place where I see um, that the church is really about to show up um, uh, presently or, um, or soon in the future, um, uh, wh wh what areas would you see that now, um, particularly in the, American, in the American context, as we are battling kind of a, a, a neo-fascist and um, anti-Christ um, spirit. Yeah, I mean, I felt God's spirit at work in the sanctuary movement um, th throughout the Trump administration when churches would take people in and um, it's not hide them because it was public, public sanctuary, but would shelter people from deportation and to watch churches change their lives to accommodate one person to make this one undocumented person the center of their life was um 
that that felt like a moment where I was like, that's the church right there. <laughs> that's um that's everything on the line. Um and um and yeah, so so really these times where you you see um during the um George Floyd protests, um, where there were churches that would take in people who were wounded or um would um, consistently show up night after night to be present in the midst of those protests. Um, I was like, wow, that, yeah, I can, you know, I can see God there. Um, remember Carl Bart said something like, you know, just because a bunch of Christians get together, um, doesn't mean that God is actually there. Um, and I, I take that very seriously in, in my own ministry, um, and, you know, and how we think about the church today. Great. Well, Melissa, thanks for coming on the program. Where can our listeners find you online? If you could share your Twitter handle and your website and those sorts of things. Yeah, you can find me just by looking at my name on Twitter. I'm supposed to be getting like better Instagram now is what like the what the publishers say. <laughs> kind of hate that. But you know, you, you do me a solid if you go follow me on Instagram too. Ugh, hate it. Okay, but- <laughs> I'll try to be, I'll, I'll try to be my best self over there too. Yeah. <laughs> well, great. Thanks for coming on the program. Uh, listeners, this has been our interview with Melissa Flor Bixler. Her book that just came out is How to Have an Enemy. Um, and you can find her online and continue to support her work. Thanks so much, Melissa. Thanks.